welcome back to the Killer Pros Podcast. I am your host and fellow author, Tanner. And uh, yeah, it's been a minute since I've been on here. I um, I got really sick, and I was sick for about two weeks, unable to record, unable to really do anything. Uh, and then it was just a mad dash to catch up my writing so that I was um, I was not falling behind, and I was able to get the books out uh, on time because I, I do want to have these published by the end of the year. I'm planning on knocking out three books this year with the first one coming out uh, probably around Q4 with the other two being released in Q1 and Q2 next year. And it is a very, very tight production schedule that I cannot afford to fall behind on. So uh, yeah, that is where I've been and I am back now. If you haven't already, make sure that you follow us on social media. I'll be dropping some stuff on there. You can follow us at Killer Pros Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can also find us on YouTube. I'm going to be doing some short videos on Plotter. I'll also do an entire episode later on the uh, the Plotter software that I use to uh, to outline this book. It was just an amazing tool, and even going past what Scrivener could do in outlining, it put together a timeline. I had visual representations of each scene, the characters that were in the scene, where I was dropping the hints and the pieces of evidence and clues for the reader, and it really just helped me visually organize the story without hanging a bunch of note cards on the wall, and uh, it exports directly to Scrivener, so it was just a very clean process to get the book outlined on on Plotter and then to start writing on Scrivener. So uh, I'll be doing an episode about that, and I'll have some videos talking about it uh, posted to, uh, to Facebook and Instagram. But uh, today's episode, and what we're going to be talking about today, I've got Edward Morris, uh, excuse me, I've got Edward Morris joining me uh, to talk about his book, Alphabet of Lightning, and just his experience writing and uh, growing in uh, science fiction and horror genres. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into that. Welcome back to the Killer Pros Podcast, formerly Writing Frights, uh, expanding a little bit with getting into some other genres and getting out of just sticking in with horror. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you check us out on social media. Again, it's going to be at the Killer Pin Podcast. And uh, today I'm joined by Edward Morris, the author of Alphabet of Lightning. Edward is an award-nominated author in the science fiction realm. His book straddles science fiction and horror in an amazing genre blend. And if you have a chance to head over to Amazon and check it out, the cover is very bizarro horror. Uh, it, it's just uh, fun to look at. And it's an amazing story. We're going to get into how he um, how he crafted it, the story behind how it came about, and, and a little bit about him just, uh, just as a person. Edward, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm already loving this. <laughs> so we're just going to get into it. Um, how long have you been writing? Professionally, I started in 2002. I started really trying to submit stuff. And there were a few places that um, gave me a leg up here and there, a lot of crit groups and things like that. And there was this guy, Paul Needs, this Way Up magazine in uh, England. He published a couple of things that I had done, like short pieces that straddled horror and noir. There was one about a serial killer holed up in the attic of a flop house called uh, Theseus that Paul just thought it was the greatest thing 
points in sliced bread. So he started asking me for more. And the more persistent I got, uh, the more those markets started to open up and appear. And meanwhile, I was had a head full of all this Stanislaw Lem and things like that, uh, trying to branch out with other works that I'll mention later that have finally found a home, the Blackguard series, cyberpunk stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a rocky start at first, but there were a lot of people that really helped me out just because I bugged them. Like I would write to these writers. I was like, I used to say I was like the Laszlo Kovacs of science fiction. Like he did the Laszlo letters and stuff. I would just bug the hell out of these writers. Like, how did you do that? Because I'd stumble across some of the finest, most like magical realism, slipstream, no idea what to call it, pieces ever. And not only that, like it could have been any genre. It was universal and it was ennobling. And I would bug these guys and these women until they told me how to do it. Um, and I made some <laughs> lifelong friendships just from reading the book, finding the actual email and sitting at their feet. Like writers love to teach. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's actually where this podcast came from. I, um, I, I was learning how to write uh, very, very early in, uh, in professional writing. And I, I found my favorite authors and was like, if I have a platform, if I reach out to them, maybe it won't be as annoying as me just being the guy who's calling them or emailing them. Hey, how did you do this? How, how can I get in your head? And they love teaching. And the thing is, they're like, they're not bugged by it at all. Not um, if it's handled deftly and with a sense of wonder mm -hmm. to writers that I can't help but give a shout out to in that regard, Paul DeFilippo and Jeff Vandermeer. They are two of the first ones that I thought of because I had a neighbor down the hall from me where I, in this apartment house where I was living that he'd check out a whole bunch of books from the library and uh, read them forever. And there were collections with uh, one of Paul's Lost Pages stories in it. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. It was about the beatniks getting locked up in an internment camp, alternative history. Um, and one of Jeff's called The Cage that was, it still takes top slot for me for the most horrifying short story I ever wrote there, or I ever read. There are a couple of ties, but yeah, The Cage, um, I had to know how he did that. And we still talk. He blurbed uh, Alphabet of Lightning enthusiastically. There are a lot of stories behind those blurbs, but Jeff and Paul uh, were two early influences who hung on for the duration because they saw stuff like this and they understood that I was their, I was their brainchild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're marvelously helpful when they figure out that uh, one is the same kind of being. Mm -hmm. Had the same reaction with Harlan Ellison, although it was of a very limited nature. But as soon, yeah, as soon as they see that someone really, really gets them, they're like a kid with a new toy, and the process it becomes two way and ten way and whatever. I mean, especially with writers, it's uh, we we spend our time creating universes. So when you find someone who works in that same realm and not just in 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 the act of creation or uh, in, in creating characters and, and and plot lines, but someone who creates in the same type of I don't want to say genre, but like atmosphere and 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 produces the same type of energy that you do. It's it's incredible to network with these people and just get together and critique work and and learn from each other. 
Uh, Although Philippa would call it the same perspective verse. Yes, when somebody yes. gets your perspective verse, then yeah, that's an incredible uh, springboard for all these other things. I had a writing workshop for a lot of years locally in Portland that was just kind of a whole bunch of different kinds of writers that got together and did that very thing. And I managed to um, kind of transplant that into a spoken word event that lasted for another seven years. Same deal. People published out of that for the first time. People got contracts and whatever. Like I had people coming and distributing their new zines at my show just because it was my show. Like anywhere you can get in and plant a garden of any kind like that, like it takes off. And that's, uh, I, I've been warned against critique groups by so many writers, but then there's people who have like your experience that, you know, half of the, or all of the people in a certain group get published or, or get under contract because you guys, you don't just tear each other down. You're feeding each yeah. other and giving uh, constructive, intelligent criticism. We had no uh, standard for membership as far as publication or whatever. We had people who had never been published. And then we had like this bizarro writer, David Agronoff, who had all these books out. And uh, we have collaborated a bunch, David and I. We have a whole history of works we've done together. But there was David Agronoff and there was this guy, Larry Hall. He was the best editor I've ever seen in my life. He does a lot of more mainstream fiction, kind of like a cross between Heller and Vonnegut a little bit. <laughs> but whenever it was editing time and Larry got on the case, we called it taking the work to electric Larry land. And he could fillet some shit, but he could do it without being an asshole. He could, um, that it was like playing operation, like that game operation back in the eighties, <laughs> uh, where every time you touch the sides, you get zapped. Every time someone would tell something without showing it, Larry would be like, nope, no, they didn't. We don't know that. The reader doesn't know that. Only the writer knows that. He always said that a writer fills in the gaps in their own head when the story is concerned, but it takes at least two more pairs of eyes to see those gaps. And that's where a good crit group comes from. But he always managed to do it without being a schmuck. Like I said, he would inject so much hilarity and so much him that electric Larry land was never a painful place to be like <laughs> he got a little snarky sometimes but we all did it was that kind of group we had uh, the king of snark uh, William F Nolan one of the writers from the writing group that produced the twilight zone he sat in on one of our groups and he acted like he was 24 years old like he really honestly cared what people thought of his work <laughs> like even though we were all like a third of his age um yeah it was it was that kind of group where it didn't matter what all you had done what mattered was what you were doing how jazzed you were about it and how much you could sit through electric larry land <laughs> There's a, uh, what is it? A pay in your dues. We in the, I do, I do uh, work in gyms during the day and I'm uh, I do corporate wellness now. And like, we, we have people that come in and they're super intimidated because you have people in there that really know what they're doing. But as soon as you put in the work and people see you improving and striving and trying, like everybody just kind of huddles around you and helps you move toward that goal. And it becomes a, a pack and almost a, like a family unit where you're, you're just working to make yourself better. You're working to make your work better. And I think yeah. that's what a good ecosystem of, of writers can do for each other. When somebody sees that you're really serious, mm -hmm. I love like any kind of interaction that I have with a new writer that way. Like 
when I see them wanting to take something to the mats. We had this 19-year-old poet named Anna Suarez at my spoken word show. Like we would sneak her into the Jade Lounge. It was supposed to be a 21 and up event, but we would sneak Anna in because she was so good. And uh, as a result of a lot of things that happened through that show, um, Anna's got publishing gigs all over the place she has a contract with clash books now and i love to see it because that's you know that's you know goes back to what we're talking about that's what the garden is supposed to look like it's supposed to produce fruit (laughs) (laughs) so with um how long did it take you when you started writing to to start opening up to people and feeling comfortable showing your work to other other writers it took a little minute. I didn't mind bouncing it off my friends, but you know that's always a cop out. That's always a crutch, especially when you use it as one repeatedly. But when I, uh, I had a couple of English teachers that were real encouraging with the poetry, so I got into like street poetry and just garage poetry thanks to this open mic in Philadelphia at the Painted Bride Art Center, and I would take stuff to the Painted Bride, and people like they would get scathing with their criticism but it was in such a way that it would make you go yeah yeah i might could use it their way like if they if the dude like the mc and a few other people who were right in the front like i don't even want to say heckling because that's sounds undignified it was dignified the way they did it but um if they were an editor like i would approach them about a rewrite (laughs) (laughs) again that's how it should be yeah that was when i first learned to um be comfortable like reading my work in public and there were a few gigs closer to home this was when i was living in central pennsylvania but going to school in philly there were a couple of coffee houses in altoona where it's the same kind of thing like a proving ground and whatever and then i moved to san francisco covered wagon had open mics and those guys are fucking brutal just absolutely (laughs) brutal but it was good it was good. They told me things that I can use. This guy that was like one of the drunkest human beings I've ever seen in my life. He took me aside after what I read. And he was like, you're never going to be like all these other people that I was clearly trying to sound like, like William S. Burroughs and shit. He's like, you're never going to be William S. Burroughs. You do not do enough heroin. You should try to sound like <laughs> you. And I was like, wow, dude, I took that home and started writing some science fiction even way back then that tried to sound like me so you know everybody's got something to teach that's one of the most important lessons that uh, that i learned is, is find your voice um don't emulate what's on the market write to your voice and then yeah. just see where it goes and even if you do a pastiche like it's something that like makes your own voice louder like uh, paul de filippo here we go back to him again. Um, he does a lot of pastiches and a lot of other voices, but I always think of the one where he did Don Marquis. Um, he did Archie the Cockroach in Little Doors, and it was perfect. <laughs> he had the meter right to such a point that it made my hair stand up. It was like Don Marquis had come back from the grave. <laughs> like, yeah, it's possible to make your voice louder that way, but you can't live there. Like a lot of people I know live there. And it's a shame because they're great writers, but I want to see them do like some kind of nihilist, like Thomas Ligotti thing or some uh, historical fiction or something for a change. Like sometimes people, that's another kind of crutch. And I'm as guilty of it as the next person. But again, even then it can be used to celebrate a lot of other stuff. Moving into um, writing Alphabet of Lightning, 
this is such an interesting story and it's uh i can see some some lovecraftian influence there i can see everybody's jumping on multiverse and time stream but this goes goes beyond that and it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, just uh, tell me a little bit about the process and where the story came from my multiverse my time stream uh can be accurately summarized by two writers who are diametric opposites of each other that i've both i've had dealings with again bugging the hell out of them saying how did you do that neil asher and cage baker neil asher did a very similar sweeping scope time travel fucking horrifying thing called cowl and Mm -hmm. uh, we had some good talks about that like or like since back in the MySpace days over the years, I was always going, how did you do that? And he was more than happy to, you know, impart his knowledge, even though we were like diametrically opposite politically. And I respect that. And the other one um, was Cage Baker. I was in Book of Cthulhu one with Cage Baker and her time travel, like the way that she did uh, the cyborg reps for the company and all those company stories like Mendoza and Hollywood that changed the shape of my skull just the idea of being able to do a lost pages story with a terminator going back and actually doing the lost pages shit that was baller and she did those right up until the bell like I didn't even know she was sick and then this one day like her partner just gets on my space like bam it's done but yeah cage was kind of like my hero uh, when it comes to the construction of the crooked man works how they came about initially was like i had the big idea when i was 11 years old and i started trying to write it down and like a whole bunch of other things dovetailed at the same time my dad had a subscription to omni and I used to read everything that came out of Omni. And I practically lived at the library. Like we'd go after school while we were waiting to pick him up from work. Like we had one car, we'd pick him up from work. And the Altoona library had all the shit that was in Omni, like everything. There were a bunch of like anthology rabbit holes that that treed off into, but, um, it was all different kinds of things, the hard science fiction, the horror, the cosmic horror, the slipstream, everything. And even back then, I was trying to synthesize it into one thing. So my takeaway from all of that massive, voracious reading I did waiting for dad to get off work was what if all of the horror that we visited on this planet as a species could be traced back to one guy? Like, you know, what if the white man like Malcolm X and them talk about like, what if the white man was one dude like Snidely Whiplash? And that was where the, (laughs) that was where the crooked man came from initially was me being 11 years old and trying to work all these things into horror. Um, I had a lot of puzzling experiences in the town where I grew up concerning lucid dreams. There were a lot of kids who liked to talk about their dreams and it was scary how much they got right, but it seemed to come easier in Hollidaysburg than it did other places. And that got worked right into the story. Um, had a lot of really supportive English teachers as I was trying to write all this stuff out and a lot of really supportive relatives. My grandma Ruth um, would sit and she would let me sit at her kitchen table and rough the shit out 
bounce it off of her for like hours and hours and she'd be like no well i don't know i think that's reaching a little bit she liked manly wade wellman and like all this crime fiction like thomas and harris and stuff they had dollar sack thursdays at the bookstore by my house and grandma would swoop she'd bring me a 20 like she'd hand me a 20 on the way to the car and then we would like just swoop the shit we would terrorize um yeah i had a lot of really receptive people both blood family and what my writer friend ann coy would call star blood um the family that you build up like not by blood but by choice Mm -hmm. um that were super supportive of it and it's been through so many stages of development it's hard to describe like in minute detail but took me 35 years to get right and the last go with scott gable was the best because scott took what i had and made it into a masterpiece he dinged me about everything and it was the best thing for it i never had an editor like that in my life i'd go back and do it again in a heartbeat um yeah scott was the last step in the process because he saw what i was trying to do with all the historical fiction stuff i mean the far future shit is a moot point even malsberg saw what i was trying to do there like half a page and he's like oh (laughs) he said such lovely things about it but um yeah he saw what i was trying to do with you know the further back stuff the 1789 stuff the 1854 stuff like all the places where the crooked man pops up his head like Mm -hmm. where you even see it in the first book and he got it either period correct or neutrally right sometimes you can't get it period correct where it's legible. I had this discussion with Harry Turtledove one time. I was trying to write a, a story in a period 1789 dialect. I used to bullshit with Harry on email sometimes. And like I showed him like a little bit of it. He was like, no, <laughs> no one will ever buy this. And he explained why. Uh, because of the two or three times that he tried to do it. He said it was a blind alley. <laughs> Now, with that, um, what about it then made it uh, undesirable for publishers to purchase? Illegible. Um, so illegible that it would make a folio Shakespeare play look like Goodnight Moon. <laughs> that was it, purely and simply put. He found ways to make the language sound, period. Like, we discussed this. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't work together on the story because he was up to his eyeballs and really I was up to my eyeballs. I shouldn't have even been jocking around collaborating with anybody or thinking about it. Um, but he brought up the idea of using language that was like enough period appropriate that you could get it, but like with a sentence structure close enough to our own that people are going to be able to understand what they're even looking at because where i was going it was practice i don't want to say it was like chaucer but like it was close (laughs) you have to have like an anthro degree to read it yeah that's a that's a delicate balance so when you're doing um period pieces or you're doing time travel pieces it you you want things to flow and be realistic but at the same time, you're writing to modern readers whose attention spans and vocabularies are, for the most part, I think most most things are written to between a fifth and an eighth grade reading level. Right. And I mean, you know, some of that goes up and down, but Scott yeah. caught every part of that like, a, like it was a piece of film. And when I go back and look at the final version, like it just flows so much better because he caught 
everything where it was, shall we say, 1789 dialogue. <laughs> so with that, when he was going through and doing the edit, was he doing it more from a developmental side or was he going through and doing line edits for, uh, for copy and readability? He did everything, everything. Like he did three edits at the freaking same time. And I'm sitting here going, wow, like I don't even go that fast. I go fast. Um, it was breathtaking. Like um, I would go back through it and like there was no stone unturned. It was just what it needed because it's such a dense, complicated piece. And it gets even more dense and complicated as we get to book two, which is uh, 1820s to... Well, really to the Cold War and kind of uh, like, well, a lot of the far future stuff, but 1820s to the 1950s. And then book three, we come out swinging in an alternate 1990s like you have never seen in your life. Book three has been on my brain lately, and I hope we get there soon. <laughs> um, but book four after that is uh, called, it's called Birth of a Nation. And uh, we go back to 1854 for another manifestation of the crooked man. And that's the Harry Turtle Dove territory. That's the one me and Harry talked about so much where he said, like, you know, it's so great to have young writers riffing on my guns in the South, the way that I used to riff on Sprague <laughs> camp and so on. Um, but then book five, we go back to the far future and wind it all up. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I got off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, 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 that was great. Uh, I, I think one of the one of the big things that we're, we can take away from this is that you cannot write by yourself in a closet. It's not like it is on television where you sit down and you're totally alone. You're in your own universe. You're in your own world, typing on a typewriter, pull it out and shoot it out to a publisher. It takes more than one person to really look at something and pull it together for it to be not just a marketable piece, but for it to be as as brilliant and and wonderful and as horrifying as it can be i'm always uh, bouncing stuff off people and with the crooked man like there's always a few people that i go to you know there's scott and there's other people who have seen the work and been present at the creation whatever like if there's a specific thing that i know that they will be like oh you finally finished that whole arc with that character or whatever then i'll bounce it off them and yeah, again, I couldn't even list all of the influences and all of the people who have helped this thing along in various stages. Like so many, none of it, ha nothing happens in a vacuum, no work like this. The more complicated it is, the more people were involved. And this one is just about as complicated as they come. Yeah. And that's, a, that's something that we've talked about before is like, if you have a story that's super complicated, um, you can make it complex without being complicated. So having those eyes on it, it sounds like what happened was you had that help to simplify the main plot points to keep it keep it yeah. linear. Um, but at the same time, you're adding complexity and depth through character and through the descriptions of the world and the science and the um, I'm going to say magic, but the the, the other world. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I don't mind the word magic at all. I'm a card-carrying dyed in the wool pagan. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's quite a bit of that. People have used that word before. There's a lot of um, a lot of different kinds of magic and a lot of folky traditions that 
pop up along the way, as you see in there with Old Lady Two Head and Doc John, and like everybody's got their own little influences that they bring to the table, and everybody's got their own ideas about Seamus. And that's all, you know, that's all the folky, witchy stuff that pops its head up again and again in various epochs. Um, it informs the story because it informs the writer. <laughs> Uh, with uh with getting this thing ready for uh for publication how how did you get hooked up with um who was it blind eye books or broken eye books broken eye books yeah uh scott i knew scott through the hp lovecraft film festival and another company word horde had been having a pitch day and i pitched something completely unrelated to ross lockhart and we had a good long talk about it got super baked i love ross to death like he's one of the most tremendous figures in publishing on the west coast as far as i'm concerned um but i had my head in that sphere and scott was handing out cards and i just asked him like a few questions about there was a crooked man i'd already had to try to have a go with it with another indie publisher from georgia and that didn't go so well but you know, I said, hey, would you, and I started explaining about, you know, how all the ills of civilization were traced back to one guy, and it was far future science fiction that was also all these other eras, and Scott was like, that's fucking weird, I want to, see, that was almost his exact <laughs> words, he was like, I want to see it, you know, let me see it, and I sent him like a sample chapter, and he goes, dude, <laughs> and we haven't stopped bashing it back and forth since it'll be interesting to see what he thinks of book two book two delves a lot more into the crooked man's backstory all the times he ever tried to become human there's a lot of cannibalism and a lot of real love craftiana with the pennsylvania church of starry wisdom <laughs> but i took it a whole different couple of ways off the leash than lovecraft ever did they're like debased amish that are cannibals oh man that sounds awesome there's a lot of um there's a lot of interesting concepts that go go through this i mean if you if you go to amazon just look at the cover and that's going to give you an idea of what you're getting into that cover came from this generation's robert williams this generation's ed big daddy roth uh that was nick gucker uh g-u-c-k-e-r look him up online he is everywhere he's all over instagram or whatever um he has recently gained some fame and notoriety by modernizing the old monster cereal boxes from the 80s like count chocula mm -hmm. looks like something out of 30 days of night like he's about to give the god no god speech from 30 days of night um yeah nick is amazing and I've known him for quite a while on the original run where we thought there was a crooked man was going to get published. He hung it at world horror con 2014 at his booth. Like he was very, very proud of the original cover piece before he did all that God awful stuff to it for the new version, which I love even better. Um, but he had the OG one up and uh, I was working security for that convention i was working for eraserhead press and i was able to escort the guest of honor daniel knopf who did nbc's dracula and carnival and like all these other wonderful things um i was able to escort him in and go hey that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> but, awesome um, nick, nick uh he is uh he's always doing something new when it comes to illustrations and things like that and like yeah, he's one of those artists that has so many projects going at the same time. He's a little bit hard to explain at one go, but um, he's the most amazing cover artist I have ever experienced, and experience is the right word. No, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. 
I like it's it definitely stands out. Like this is on a shelf, and like when you're scrolling through, uh, if you're looking for, I think this will probably show up in cosmic horror. If you're looking for time travel sci-fi, if you're there's there's so many genres that are brought into this. Yeah. And I I started to do an episode on this a little while ago. To transcend genre, you bring in elements and story beats from other genres. That's why, as a writer, it's so important to to read wide. So you know, you read romance novels, read mystery novels, read thrillers, read you know science fiction. A writer who's been real supportive of my work who called it outstanding, a collection that I did called Music for Four Hands, um, Joe R. Lansdale, said that um, you have to become your own genre. And that's church. I, I, I try to do that. Like the best ones that I come up with that are infuriatingly short and they take no time rather than the big long ones that I want everybody to like. But yeah, that, that's absolutely the way that it's done. Like when not even just to transcend it, but to, well, I mean, that's as good a word as any, but to become your own genre. Also, I mean, takeaways from this, this has been a, just a wealth of knowledge for new writers. Don't write in a box, talk to people, network with people. Don't be afraid to bug them. The worst thing you're going to get from that is a no. And the best thing you're going to get from that is an amazing book like this out on the shelves and to, to really not just get a career going, if that's your goal, but to really get good at the craft. And I would, yeah. I would call this like, I wouldn't even put this into genre fiction. I would say this is more, more elevated fiction. It's um, magical realism. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So absolutely check it. And did you write the blurb for this? Uh, the There are a bunch of blurbs for this. You mean like the back jacket copy and stuff? Yeah, um, yeah I did. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, mean, just if you want to get an Scott idea. Scott is an indie presence. publisher and he's just one guy. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'll write it. <laughs> Do it all. Yeah. But yeah, if you want to get an idea of his prose, just look at the uh, look at the back jacket. This is one of the things I, when I was in college and when I was when I was studying writing, um, I hated writing poetry. I was like, I'm not a poet. I'm not going to do this. I want to write stories. I didn't understand that when you write with restraint and you have to write inside of uh, inside of various forms and, and using techniques, you have to pick the exact right word for that line, the exact right um, uh, number of uh, syllables or the, the way the con consonants feel in, in your mouth or the way they look to your eyes. And it makes you so much better at writing prose, just even if you're not good at poetry to sit and write it. Playing operation. Like as <laughs> soon as you get dinged, like you're like, oh shit, I got to stay within these lines, but it makes you better. You're absolutely right. It makes you better. But guys, uh, get outside the box, get out, get outside of your comfort zone, talk to people, bring them into your work, share with other people. Um, I, for a long time, I had this thing where I, I could pay somebody to look at my work, uh, because there was like this emotional detachment from it because now it's a job, but I've, I've gotten so much better as a writer, just sharing it with other writers, sharing it with family members and bringing in beta readers. Um, so there's not that, that monetary separation. For uh, sure. Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean, it helps, it helps so much people who are honestly interested in the work. I'm really lucky with uh, one series that I have coming out. It's a superhero science fiction series coming out serialized through Interzone magazine called I Am Legion. Um, a lot, it's really bouncer heavy. And a lot of the characters were modeled after people and I know in real life, so I can bounce most of the stuff off of them. 
but not every work is going to have so many good Pickman's models in one trade or one walk of life or whatever. Sometimes you got to take it to the open mics or you got to publish little bits of it elsewhere. Or as you say, you find your beta readers, whatever they're going to look like and where, wherever, whenever. Mm-hmm. Those are worth hanging on to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. When you find somebody that can give you intelligent feedback, yeah, um, yeah do whatever you have to to keep them. Keep them in your lives short of being super unhealthy about it. Uh, (laughs) Anybody who can provide you with whatever form of electric Larry land that they provide you with in that way. Like, yeah, they're definitely worth it. Absolutely. Well, Hey man, thank you for coming on the show. This has been absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I've learned a lot myself. But guys, uh, absolutely head over to Amazon. Where um where do you prefer your books be purchased? Brokeneyebooks.com, barnesandnoble.com, Amazon if you want to. I'm certainly not going to stand in your way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, brokeneyebooks.com and barnesandnoble.com are both where I go to gloat first. So that's where I steer people first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check it out. It is uh, it's an amazing read. And as a writer, it's just it. I have fun seeing how people put sentences and paragraphs together, how people play with, with various concepts. And it is, uh, reading this book is entertaining, but also an amazing exercise in just seeing some really, really amazing prose. You'll see how it all gels together as the series winds on. There's so many different arcs. It's like game of Thrones, like the way that he had to wind all that stuff together. I don't envy him his work a bit, but it's the same kind of thing. Like you have to tighten the net eventually. And what you're seeing is a wide open net, but it does get tightened down a lot. And there's a lot more famous faces. You know, you saw Lovecraft and uh, Dashiell Hammett. There's a, lot more people pop up like that but yeah when we get to book two which is called our town then we'll probably be talking some more (laughs) (laughs) all right man thanks for coming on and guys if you haven't already check us out on social media at um i keep wanting to say at writing fright but it's at killer pros podcast um i'm gonna put up some stuff and links on there uh for uh for his book uh for alphabet of lightning (laughs) Yeah. yeah and uh I will see you guys next week.